0: Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast, I'm Toby Buckle. Are our employers a threat to our freedom? And how should power be managed and handled and constrained within large corporations? My guest today to discuss this and more with us is Professor Elizabeth Anderson. Professor Anderson, as many of you will know, is someone whose work I've referenced on the podcast before, so it was a real pleasure to have her on, particularly in the context of my Machiavelli series, when I talked about different conceptions of freedom and how our freedom might be constrained by many factors beyond simply our government. Professor Anderson is at the University of Michigan, where she is the John Dewey Distinguished Professor and the John Rawls Collegiate Professor. She specializes in ethics, social and political philosophy, feminist theory, social epistemology, and the philosophy of economics and social sciences. She's particularly interested in exploring the interactions of social science with moral and political theory, how we learn to improve our value judgments, the epistemic functions of emotions and democratic deliberation, and issues of race, gender, and equality. She's the author of Value in Ethics and Economics, The Imperative of Integration, and most recently Private Government, How Employers Rule Our Lives and Why We Don't Talk About It. This is going to be a two-part conversation. Um, There's a danger, I think, in having on guests who I agree with a little bit too much. So in the first part, this episode, we're going to cover the argument of private government and have a look at some of its applications. I should quickly mention, I guess, that in this episode, I reference, albeit rather obliquely, some of my personal experiences in my career. I should say that when I'm talking about working in campaigns and being a senior manager, that's stuff I used to do. I have a relatively more normal job now. Um, But I've done a few different interesting, shall we say, things in my life in temporary and high-pressure environments in politics. So in the first part, we cover that, the argument of private government, uh, how employers rule our lives, as Professor Anderson puts it. And then the second part is a somewhat more unstructured conversation where we really just get into it looking at the profit motive and what it's doing to our ideology and our society. And I bring in some more of my own views as well. So that's what's coming up. As always, if you do like the podcast, please share the episodes on your own social media to help get the word out there. And if you can support us in a more monetary way, please sponsor us on Patreon, patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast. And if you want to like, subscribe, whatever, all the links to all of the different ways you can do that are on our website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. Apart from that, it is my absolute pleasure to bring you the first part of my conversation with Professor Elizabeth Anderson. joined today by Elizabeth Anderson. Elizabeth, or Professor, sorry, welcome to the podcast.
1: It's great to be talking to you.
0: So I'll have already introduced you at this point, but, and actually I think probably a lot of the audience who listen to philosophy podcasts will be familiar with you, but for those who aren't, um, how do you describe what you do and the types of issues you think and write about?
1: Well, I do... uh mainly work in moral and political philosophy, feminist theory, philosophy of the social sciences, and social epistemology, and I look at the interactions between these things. The chief characteristic of my work is engagement with empirical findings in history and the social sciences. I think it's key to be Doing political philosophy, starting from problems, and problematic experiences that people are actually having on the ground, and then theorizing normatively about what's the nature of those problems, what are the best ways to understand those problems, and understanding uh, norms as... Experimental. Well, you try them out, that's how you test any kind of normal normative proposal. You try it out and see whether the outcomes are acceptable, whether they solve the problem that was originally diagnosed, <laughs> or whether they pop up new problems that then you have to contend with. So it's a pragmatist approach, which is also very deeply in common with feminist approaches to ethics and political philosophy. And that's really why I think it's really important to uh, look at conditions on the ground and also where we came from historically, because a lot of what happens today is simply a reflection of habits we've inherited from the past, perhaps that were shaped under radically different contexts that don't really fit our current predicament.
0: So... Um, listeners obviously won't be able to see this, but I often just scribble, um, little notes as people are speaking, and I scribbled a note of experiences on the ground, because I'm going to definitely come back and reference that again. To start with, though, um, I've just read, um, your work Private Government, which I really, really like this. This was originally lectures, right? It was the Tanner Lectures, and then it became a book afterwards.
1: Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it matches something. So here's why I wanted to talk to you is I've been saying for quite a while now that political philosophy, as a sort of maybe outsider critic of it, I've been saying it spends a lot of time correctly discussing issues of income inequality. And correctly, that's very important. But it spends, to my mind, an in- inadequate amount of time discussing issues of power. And particularly issues of power within the workplace, which affect a huge amount of all of our lives. And whenever I say this, I get the the same response is, what about Elizabeth Anderson? Which, you know, fair enough, right? (laughs) Um, So it's great to have you on to to sort of fill that. To start with, then, could you outline the basic thesis? Um, I mean, it's right there in the subtitle How Employers Rule Our Lives. Um, or the subheading, rather. What is the essential thesis of this work or of these lectures?
1: The key idea is that we have to recognize the workplace as a site of government. Right. You have bosses who are ruling over workers, issuing them orders, and threatening to do bad things to them if they don't follow those orders. Maybe they'll get fired or demoted or just yelled at. And when you are subject to orders and have to obey on threat of sanction, you are subject to government. So that way of understanding things allows us to apply the tools of political philosophy to a site where it hasn't usually been applied. As you properly note, most political philosophers are obsessed with the state and ignore authority government in other domains outside of the state, and I wanted to highlight the fact that you have millions of workers who are suffering under bosses who are being very abusive and controlling and interfering with their autonomy, even off-duty. That's what I wanted to highlight, Um, and it's a problem that's pervasive, especially in the American workplace. So that's government. The, the workplace is a site of government, but it's also a site of what I call private government. And by that, I mean you can ask, if the workplace is a site of government, what is the constitution of that government? Well, it's certainly not a democracy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we know that. I mean, there's a handful of worker-owned firms which maybe have a democratic organization, but that's so rare in America. Mostly, the constitution of the government of the workplace is a dictatorship Hmm. in which the bosses have virtually unaccountable power over the workers. The workers don't really have much recourse to hold their bosses to account. They don't have a voice within the government of the workplace, not a secure voice, unless they are represented collectively uh, by a labor union. So that's what I call private government, when the government is kept private from those who are ruled by it and treated as just a private matter of the rulers.
0: So the first objection would be that most people would think is, well, the workplace is nothing like government because, you know, the state can imprison you or whatever. The state is non-optional. Like, whereas you can just go find another job, you can leave, you know, if you don't like your boss, you can leave at any point, would probably be the first reaction people would have to that thesis?
1: Right. And uh, look, people could emigrate from Italy under Mussolini. We don't say that, therefore, it was a democracy. It's still a dictatorship. Hmm. Within the EU, there's freedom of movement. People have not only the right to exit any country in the EU, but they actually have an absolute right to enter other countries in the EU. But we don't think that government has ended on account of that. Um, And similarly, for the vast majority of workers, self-employment is not a credible option uh, to make a living. And so really, the only options are hopping from one dictatorship to, to the next. The exit right doesn't change the constitution of the government.
0: Yeah. And especially in the United States, the cost of leaving um, can be really quite high because, for instance, our health care tends to be tied to our employment. So you can say you're free to leave, but if you have a close relative who is reliant on your health care, that's a very precarious sort of freedom. And it's also the case, weirdly, I was thinking about this, that the constraints on leaving a workplace are, like, employers themselves really make them quite high. So if you leave a job because you were fired or you don't have a good reference leaving that job, it'll be very hard if you're in a competitive field where the different firms know each other, it'll be very hard to find a job. At that level of employment again, and you'll have to start at the bottom of the ladder. And that seems to me to be by design. And so, in other words, like leaving a job can ruin your life, it can kill people. And that doesn't quite get to the power of sanction the state has, like firms can't imprison us. But it, there, there seems to be an ignorance or a lack of attention to just how severe the sanctions that firms can impose on us really are.
1: Quite right. Uh, So, look, you don't have to say that government only exists when there's a power to imprison or execute you. (laughs) Hmm. There are weaker forms of government, but even the weaker forms, such as we find in the workplace, can still impose terrible costs. On workers, And that's why they put up with mountains of abuse, uh, uh, because they, the cost of exit can be extremely high, and also because they have no assurance that if they move to a different firm, things will be any better. To illustrate, about 90% of, uh, of servers in restaurants are subject to sexual harassment well, it's such a notorious and pervasive problem that just moving from one restaurant to the next isn't really going to offer any assurance that one will be able to escape this problem. It's simply out of control and pervasive. So why, you know, exit doesn't really help people that much.
0: No, not at all. And it's also the case that just the power imbalance is so much that there's a conception that you discuss, I think, in the second lecture, that it's sort of um it's a contract, right? Like it and one of the people you cite refers it to like, I can go to the grocer and say, I want to buy this brand of tuna, and the employer can say, I want this type of labour from you, as if it's just a choice people make but accepting like people with very specialized skill sets you take the job or you don't and the alternative will be another job like it assuming you know you don't have specialized qualifications or higher education or anything like that you have to take what you're given and that's it or you starve and die
1: yes i think the critical issue here is that the terms of employment are dictated by the employer. And it's only the rare case, either if one is represented by a collective bargaining unit, a union, or if one is a very has rare skills that one's in a position to do any serious negotiating. The vast majority of employment situations, workers don't even get an opportunity to negotiate terms. So they they just have to accept whatever is offered.
0: Which leads to a huge concentration of power that's absolutely unchallengeable, and that 's always been my thing about it is say what you will about our politicians, and they certainly deserve our abuse and derision at times. We can at least in theory vote them out of office. There is nothing at all you can do to challenge the power of a manager. you know you can file a hr complaint or something but
1: which is dangerous. Seventy percent of workers who complain about sexual harassment at work face retaliation. No wonder they're keeping silent in the vast majority of such cases they never even come forth. Yeah. So, yeah. And on top of that, in the United States, mandatory arbitration agreements are now forced on workers. Um, and, and that means that they have to take their complaints. to an arbitrator arbitrator who has a contract with the employer, not with the employees. So we already know, we have excellent data on how arbitrators work. They return judgments in favor of the employer vastly more frequently than when workers get to sue their employer in court.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I can't go into details, but I've been a senior manager at some places and I've been on the sort of bodies that make decisions about, do we let this person go for sexual harassment or fraud or whatever? And even when you're in that place of making a decision, you operate under within parameters that are defined by the organization, shall we say. And Again, it's the same thing of if you don't like that, you can do something else. But even the people really making the calls are doing so within a system that is set up by and set up in the interests of the underlying power structure. Now, that doesn't mean that within that power structure, you can't make better and worse decisions and make fairer or unfairer calls. But you're still You know, you can apply the rules fairly, but the rules are the rules, and you're not in a position to challenge them. So even comparatively, senior people, you know, unless you are the person owning the firm, and even then, you're still operating within a legal system that is designed for you, you know?
1: That's exactly right. So it is important to keep in mind that the default employment contract, the one that exists Uh, if there isn't any actual negotiation and haggling over terms, that default contract was actually written by the state. Uh And the state dealt all the authority cards to the employer and none to the worker. There's a baseline of power that's underwritten by labor law uh, that creates this incredible asymmetry And even the few legal rights that workers have are so dangerous for them to exercise uh, that they frequently just hold their tongue. So it is supposedly a guaranteed right of workers to complain about working conditions, even if they are not represented by a labor union. Hmm. But it's so dangerous to speak out against a boss who could fire you that most workers don't do
0: that. You'd kind of be, yes. And certainly, this is something that, you know, you don't need a philosophy to degree to know. Every worker who's doing like an entry-level job in America knows that making a complaint is putting a target on your back. And indeed, most senior and mid-level people know that acutely because your power in that situation is built on your relationships.
1: Oh, completely. That's right. And the people in the middle also probably have aspirations to rise up in the organization. Uh, And being seen as a troublemaker and a boat rocker or a so-called disgruntled employee is not good for your career prospects.
0: You will get not the bosses themselves, but people who are your peers, who are close to the bosses coming up to you and saying things like, so are you happy here? Have you thought about moving on? Those sorts of yeah, questions exactly. will come up.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They're helping nudge you out.
0: <laughs> there, were, there, was, there were mechanisms of soft power you could call it. The other thing, um, and again, I can't go too much into my own experience with these things, but there's an aspect of the operation of power that we recognize very clearly in political actors, but not at all in... Well, I mean, I would say, like, the owners of a big firm are political actors. They wield an incredible amount of power that definitionally is political. But, you know, accepting a sort of state-non-state divide here... Um, is that we recognize very clearly that power is brutalizing in state actors. So going all the way back to Plato's Tyrant, all the way through to the modern day, there's this understanding that having a lot of power isn't good for people. It doesn't do good things to their psychology. And I've seen that, you know, I won't name any organizations, but I've seen that quite up close in senior managers who's essentially the bread and butter of their job is firing people that it doesn't do good things to them it didn't do good things to me and that that's sort of one of the reasons you want accountability on power is not just i mean primarily for the sake of the governed but it's actually being a, an absolute tyrant of a state or of a private government as you call them isn't a position we should want to be in, actually.
1: Yes, I agree. A part of what's happened, too, with with the deregulated, untrammeled capitalism that's emerged since the uh, all-out assault on labor unions and the power of workers, it's not going to corrupt the people at the top. It also makes them ignorant of what's going on because workers are afraid to complain. Hmm. But on top of that, when workers are disempowered, there's also a selection effect in the top. That is, the narcissists, uh, the megalomaniac, now see an open path to power, whereas before, when executives had to operate under greater constraints and pushback, The type of people who would select into those roles were actually more morally responsive Mm. sorts of people. Uh, Now we just have total predators up at the top
0: and sycophants. And a lot of the time, they're not even. So you call it a dictatorship, but with some like corporate structures that are, you know, high turnover, not particularly great on employee rights. The analogy that comes to mind most closely for me is like, sort of like the feudal system in England in the Middle Ages, where you have like, these local lords and their fiefdoms, and like some loose, centralized authority trying to rein them all in. And...
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In fact, it, sometimes I use the term "contract feudalism" to describe the workplace.
0: Um, But the analogy goes not just to the structure, but to the culture of feudalism, where the Lord is, like, surrounded by flatterers. And, like, you get these wonderful, not wonderful, terrible, like, old English aristocrats who were just appalling people, completely ignorant of everything in the world and around them, and were obviously would never have gotten near that position if merit was a criteria but are surrounded by people who just sort of praise them endlessly. And you, have the, and you create these people who then have no awareness of their own limitations. Like, they can't even take feedback well and just sort of exist to be flattered. The The, the politics of the sort of court then, when you have power that is that unchecked, like that whole culture becomes created. And I'm not saying that's true of like there are obviously some very capable, very decent senior managers in America, but it's not about the individuals. It's about the structure creates that culture.
1: I think I think there's a lot to be said for that. In, in certainly in many in many firms you see that kind of culture emerging, but I, I also do want to stress that there's a wide variety of corporate cultures. Um, so it, it, it's not uniformly awful. There are actually some really well-managed firms that are relentlessly abusive to their workers. And we have to recognize that that, that, there, that there is that variety. And, and that's one of the reasons why we don't see every last worker Uh, complaining about their situation or even aware that they're living under a dictatorship uh, when they are. Because for a lot of workers, you know, the work pretty good.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I shouldn't say that some of the things I've been saying apply to every firm, or even most. Uh, Maybe it's a small minority. But...
1: But it also, of course, different workers within the firm uh, uh, experience different kinds of power exercised yes. on them. So the, generally speaking, the higher up you are, uh, the better The better things are for you, the less abusive the power. Uh, it's really the lower-level workers who are easily replaced, the entry-level mm. workers, unskilled workers, and so forth, who, who suffer most of the abuse.
0: Yeah, I, I think the kingship aristocratic analogy is quite nice, actually, in that you you can have very capable people become, you know, king or whatever, or lord of the manor. And when you get your really, you know, your Frederick the Greats or whatever, it's like, wow, isn't it great that they have all this power? Because they can really get stuff done in a way that some sort of more constrained system never could. But then there's also no guardrails on it at all when you get someone who's incompetent or worse, malicious in that role
1: mindedly focused on profit yes uh so i think an interesting example of this would be tesla Mm. uh, making the you know the car the electric car Mm. um you know the consumer reviews indicate that at least their high-end model is a spectacular car and unbelievably fun to drive uh so as a piece of technology it's quite impressive But Elon Musk himself is a little bit of a megalomaniac and Mm. a (laughs) narcissist. And he's just just completely out of control. One of the consequences of this is that there's no safety uh, in his assembly plan. Mm. Because it's speed at all costs. He realizes that the company needs to expand its market. And, you know, to hell with worker safety. There's tons of accidents. People are injured, and he he just doesn't care.
0: Yeah, and Tesla has recently outed himself as like um, something of like a complete idiot on Twitter. As soon as he got onto social media, and we just got the oh live. yeah,
1: really? They should shut down his Twitter account for sure. <laughs>
0: I think I think all of these people should be on Twitter. Like, I want the live feed from that guy's brain, okay. and it's just. <laughs>
1: they are. <laughs> yeah, well, well
0: what do Marxists say? It's very demystifying of this ideological idea that the captains of industry are there because they're the hardest, steeliest, most competent you know, you know what I mean, people in our society. And when you get just their brain farts going live to all of us <laughs> it really, it, um it's, it's demystification, right, the Marxist concept where you just suddenly see like, oh no yeah, no, they're just as stupid as the rest of us you know?
1: <laughs> yeah, well Marx... Ego, but then you also just have some executives who are kind of spreadsheet managers. Yeah. They have no connection, actually, to, to the conditions on the ground. They're just trying to push numbers in various directions. And it, these people, I don't even think it's ego for them. Mm. It, it's just they've got numbers they want to hit, and they don't care how this happens. And then things go wrong. So look at Boeing, for instance. Um, the, the Boeing managers—they're pretty much faceless. Who do we do we even know who the Boeing executives are? They don't have a profile the way Elon I, Musk. Has.
0: I couldn't name them if my life to to be, depended on it. They
1: don't seem to be publicity hogs, but they were just so driven by by you know this need to deliver these these supermax jets. And, you know, safety goes out the window. Now, safety for passengers, we're not even talking about the workers here. They just, you know, they had deadlines. They had production schedules. They just had to get things done so they could book their profits. It's all about moving the numbers on which their bonuses are based. Uh, And, in fact, they were remarkably detached, shockingly detached from from the engineers, from the actual assembly plants, they didn't care. They just said, deliver the goods. You know, <laughs> whether they were defective products, it didn't matter.
0: Yeah. There's um, a final element to this, um, and I wanted to ask your opinion on this. Um, so I've just done a long series on Machiavelli, of all people. Um, who I read as having a sort of Republican non-domination conception of freedom. And one thing I found interesting in his work was there was a continual um, going back to ideas of domination and linking it to ideas of humiliation. The, the the feelings of powerlessness are very closely connected to feelings of humiliation, and even though our dominant ideology of, you know, call it what you will, libertarianism, neoliberalism, what have you, has sort of sanitized these power structures and said that we don't need to ask questions about the operation of power within them in the way that we would with states— that doesn't change the lived experience of the people at the bottom of those power structures, or even often in the middle of those power structures, in that as a matter of lived experience, they feel that powerlessness very closely. And more than that, they feel um, humiliated. And in, in my formulation, humiliation isn't just that you're subject to domination, it's that the dominator is rubbing your nose in it. He's making it plain to you, you are, or she for that matter, that you are powerless. And I think that there's, for many, many people who are, by definition, people who are not very powerful, who don't have a big voice in our society, a huge amount of their mental energy is subsumed in feelings of humiliation that can then lead to feelings of anger and that anger doesn't have anywhere to go because it can't express itself within those power structures. And you end, it ends up erupting in the political realm in ways that can be productive insofar as as elevating left-wing outsiders like Bernie Sanders or Jeremy Corbyn, but it also can be incredibly destructive in terms of these explosions of bigotry and nativism and xenophobia that we've seen throughout the Western world. And people are always saying, you know, why are voters so angry? And it's like, because voters feel powerless and humiliated. And it's not often that much to do with the government. It's just they're the ones they have. the That's the power structure that they have the ability to give a kicking to. But if you look at just the lived experience of their day life, they just have to eat shit every day and do it with a grin on their face. Like you say, the waitress going to work... I'm amazed that statistic isn't 100% or 99%, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And they have to deal with that. And then they have to get told off by their boss. I know a lot of people who spent a lot of time in the serving industry. You will be blamed for being sexually harassed. What yeah. did you do to provoke it? And people have a innate sense of dignity and pride. And that has to go somewhere. And it becomes anger. And anyway, so I'll pause there. But do you think that's a plausible narrative for why a lot of the anger and the lack of trust in our systems is emerging?
1: Well, I do think that the um, the fact that neoliberalism uh, took over even the center-left political parties uh, certainly has... People think, well, nobody cares about us. Right. Um, So, you know, the Democratic Party basically went over to neoliberalism under Clinton, and uh, that was a political strategy. Um, It led to these free trade agreements, uh, which actually had a pretty devastating effect on manufacturing in the United States. If you look at the Uh, counties that shifted in the 2016 election uh, from having voted for Obama in 2012 to flipping to Trump in 2016, uh, a lot of them are these rural, ex-urban, former manufacturing centers uh, where people lost jobs mostly due to China's accession to the World Trade Organization, and then the overpowering uh, competitiveness of low-wage Chinese manufacturing uh, led to the shutdown of all these uh, plants. But then, of course, what's frustrating people is that they're unemployed, (laughs) not even so much as that they're getting abused and humiliated at work, although I suppose it's one of the consequences of unemployment is then they take much more horrible jobs that pay less. Maybe they get stuck working at Walmart now. And Walmart is a notoriously abusive employer, you know, where they have a relentless pace and the poor workers are getting yelled at all the time. So that, that's certainly an experience of humiliation. There's, so there's a felt sense of loss where they once had dignified jobs, perhaps uh, even protected by a labor union. Mm. Um, and now they're in a crack job. Mm. I, I think, yeah, that, that could be part of it. There's a rage against the system uh, because really even, even the left parties abandon. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, where do, you, where do you have an outlet for that rage? Well, we see in both countries demagogic attempts to direct that anger against immigrants, Mm. Um, uh, which is, uh, I think, just it's a distraction from what's really going on, which is plutocracy.
2: Mm.
0: Do you think, though, that do you? I mean, I'll just ask this question. There's the sort of question that gets asked of the whole Trump movement of, like, is this racism or economic anxiety or both? My answer would be it's both, but we shouldn't discount the racism element, right? Well,
1: the racism element is incredibly prominent, and this is actually a very old playbook that was created, political playbook, that was created in the United States in the 19th century in, in struggles over the abolition of slavery. <clears throat> so you had John C. Calhoun, famous uh, pro-slavery senator, very powerful politician uh, in the United States government for a very long time, defending slavery against the anti-slavery agitation up north. Uh, And basically, Abraham Lincoln's anti-slavery argument was not just that slavery was wrong, it was, a, it was an injustice to the slaves, but also that it undermined the interests of free white workers. Mm. His argument was, you know, for one thing, if slaves do manual labor, then anyone doing manual labor gets demeaned and stigmatized because they're doing slave work. Mm. Uh, but also, there was a material interest that free workers had in ensuring that everyone is a free worker. So they don't have to compete against slave labor. Uh, This is a particular concern out West where there were still territories open for settlement. Lincoln argued that if you let slave owners go out to these territories, they'll create these giant plantations uh, with hundreds of slaves and displace opportunities for free workers to stake out a homestead of their own and be self-employed. Calhoun had an argument against that, and he wrote a very famous speech, he delivered a very famous speech, and he said, oh, these northerners, they don't understand how how things work in the South. Among us whites, whether we own slaves or not, whether we're rich or poor, we all enjoy a a status of equality in virtue of being white. Mm. And we're all superior to blacks, whether they're slave or free. Um, and, And basically what Calhoun was saying here is to whites, to poor whites, who are economically exploited and, and trampled down by the economic system. He's saying, we're offering you a better bargain than those northerners. Hmm. Yeah, sure, you're going to be poor and downtrodden, but you still get to trample all over blacks. You have racial privilege. <laughs> <laughs> it, you get all these symbolic goods that we're offering you in virtue of being white. And that's the kind of consolation prize for the fact that you are propertyless uh, and, and desperate. And, you know, it's an incredibly persuasive argument. And we still have, have whites today who are voting against their material interests because, because they have a deeper stake in whiteness and white privilege, uh, the, the, their symbolic stake. And and that's what they they took that bargain and they continue to take it. And meanwhile, their pockets are getting picked by the plutocrats. But, but they're okay with that.
0: But it's very real. Like I think the fact that these feelings are you know, morally grotesque shouldn't blind us to this is a motivating ideology for tens of millions of Americans, and they, they, they experience. The, the loss of that ability to have someone under them to be able to freely discriminate against black people. So they experience that loss as humiliating. The, I know- think
1: that's right. But there's also a fear element that's extremely important. If anything, mm. I think fear is more dominant uh, uh, than sadism in, in today's politics. Mm. Um, this idea that people of color are going to be demographically superior and that mm. whites are going to be shut out of power, it's, it's just terrifying I think people are genuinely, white Trump
0: voters. I think people are genuinely concerned by that. I guess it's just a feeling I don't relate to very well. Like, it just it's just not happening. Like, even if, you know, non-white people become 52% of America, like, we still have a lock on all of the power structures in the country. Like, we, we still own all of the wealth. Like, you're not, you, you, you know, the, 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 the hoard is not coming for your stuff anytime soon. This is a, this is a fantasy, and it's a perverse fantasy.
1: Well, it, of course, it is a perverse fantasy, but <laughs> passed down for endless generations. <laughs> so if you go back to uh, Thomas Jefferson's Southside, Virginia... So mm. in Jefferson's an Enlightenment guy. He knows, perfectly knows that slavery is wrong. Uh, he even wrote about it, how slavery is not only immoral and unjust and a violation of, of human rights, uh, but also that it's profoundly corrupting of slave owners. Yes. He's one of the most insightful writers on that. So in Notes on Virginia, he considers, well, given the gross injustice of slavery, shouldn't we just, like, free all the slaves? And he asked this question. And, you know, he entertains a number of reasons why one might not, but the one that really gets to him is the worry that if the slaves were freed, they would rise up in vengeance and try to kill all the whites in a race war would erupt. That terror of at, at, at black freedom has been passed down from generation to generation, never mind that it's completely irrational and wildly conspiratorial. Uh, we also know that, uh, that in fact, Trump voters are – if you look in the polling data, the people who voted for Trump in the primaries before he actually won the Republican Party nomination, those people are off the charts, more conspiracy-minded than any other group in America. Mm. Uh, <laughs> right? And so if you're already a little paranoid and worried and anxious and fearful <laughs> – You know, that somebody's going to come to get you. (laughs) Right. And that's sort of the disposition that Trump has been actively promoting, although less so these days about about African-Americans than about immigrants. Yeah. But there's this panic. It's a racial panic about people coming across the Mexican border.
0: Yeah. This is getting way off topic, but one of my favorite studies ever showed that the sort of specific subset of people who are most susceptible to conspiracy theories are people who are lower intelligence, but have the highest estimation of their own intelligence. (laughs) 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 Yeah, right. (laughs) And it's like not nice to say it, but like they've done social science on this. And it's like low IQ, low educated people who nonetheless have a very strong, egoic sense. And I mean, if the the glove fits, you know. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. Coming up next, as I mentioned at the beginning, will be the second part of my conversation with Professor Anderson we're going to go more into detail on Trump and racism. We're going to discuss a potential theory for why professional political philosophers focus more on inequalities of wealth than they do on inequalities of power. And I'm going to pursue one of my pet theses that Trump is a very good representation of Plato's tyrant. So all of that's to come. I hope you'll join us next week for it as always, if you want to support this podcast, you know, please do so. There's a few ways you can do that. Sharing episodes always really helps. We've grown our audience now, thousands of people tune into this. So that's all just really from people sharing on their social media. So if you can hit that share button when you finish the episode, that is much, 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 much appreciated. And if you're able to support in a more monetary way, check out our Patreon page. Once again, that's just patreon.com philosophy podcast. And the w- links are on our website, which is politicalphilosophypodcast.com. So if you are able to support for a dollar or two, even, that would be greatly, greatly appreciated. The show does not have any advertisers. I think advertisements spoil the quality of podcasts. I hate it when, you know, I'm listening to a show and we suddenly take a break to learn about that just new toothpaste or new underwear or something. I It bugs me. So because it's my podcast, I don't want to do it. So I don't. But there are various costs associated with doing this. And I'm very, very fortunate to have listeners who chip in to help me cover those costs. So very, very grateful for them. And if everyone's able to chip in, then we should be able to continue funding this podcast. And I say everyone, even if just a small percentage of people chip in. So that's my appeal for support. And yeah, apart from that, thanks again for listening. And I hope you'll join us again next week for part two.